You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess what we just saying that our hearts are sometimes weary, sometimes overwhelmed, prone to wandering, and we ask that you would anchor us like a big old chain. You would bind our hearts to you, that you would anchor us in your word, that you would anchor us to the truth of who you are and by extension who we now are in you. Pray we'd continue in worship this morning as we open up your word that your Spirit would teach us, challenge us, and continue to be at work transforming us through the power of your Word, by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. How are we doing today, River City? Good? I'll take that as a good. Uh, You can turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, some folks will come around and they'd love to put a Bible in your hands. You can slip your hand up um, so you can read along. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. And as you're finding your place in Luke's gospel, let me ask you a question. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only listen to one song for the rest of your entire life, what song would that be? See, earlier this week, I got to spend a few days with some other X29 pastors, part of our church planning network from the Midwest. But rather than meeting here in the Midwest, we tried to go to a place warm and hang out there because we're all from cold places and it was rainy and 50 degrees there. So I guess we just brought our Midwest cold with us. But I got to hang out and it was really a refreshing, encouraging time with them over a few days. And on Wednesday, um, I was having lunch with with one of them uh, just before I was flying home. And uh, we just kept commenting as we were eating lunch on all the really great late 90s, early 2000s jams that were just continuing to play in, through the music system at the restaurant. And he looked at me and asked me that question. If you were on a deserted island and could only pick one song to listen to for the rest of your life, what would it be? And you know what I said? I said, that is a stupid question. <laughs> it's a dumb question, and I didn't like it. I mean, how can you pick just one? And then he said, okay, how about like top three? And I gave him a couple. That even now, I'm like, I don't know that I'd pick that one now. I did it on Wednesday, but not today. I'm probably changing my mind next week, too. Because I don't know if even now I like the choices that I picked for I had three to choose from. And part of the reason is I don't like being put in that kind of a box, right? There are too many options. There's too many bangers. How can I pick just one? This was the challenge for me. Now, while this particular illustration and question I'm asking is kind of a dumb one, I'm just admitting that my illustration is dumb. But it did get me thinking. So all the plane ride home, and as I've been working through this text this week in preparation for today's message, I started to think about the larger implications of the question he was asking me. Not about music and deserted islands and all of that, but about the general human condition. I don't think I'm alone in this, that we don't like being put in a box, right? We don't like that question because it's too narrow, We like flexibility. We like having options. We don't like being painted into a corner. We'd rather have like a range, right? And then we can find our unique place. 
Like my musical taste is post-punk, indie, acoustic, rock jazz. And you're like, excuse me? Like, no, that's my niche. I don't know if that's a thing. I made that up. But it should be. Can someone start that uh, station on Spotify? I will subscribe to it. Right? The, but we like that, right? We like to find our unique little niche in the litany of options. It's how it is when we come to view our own personalities. It, it comes as we, as we try to identify ourselves politically, right? We don't want to fit into a box that someone says, I must fit in this box. When it comes to our preferences, whether it's food or music or whatever. And, and there are places where we can have variety and options and nuance, and that's all well and good. But here in Luke, the reason I'm asking this question is here in Luke, when Jesus frees a man from demonic oppression, which we'll read about in a second, he drops a big old truth bomb right in the middle of the people who are listening to what he has to say and watching what he's doing. Essentially, I'm giving away the ending right here, that when it comes to our spiritual condition, there's no spectrum. There's no range. There's no middle ground. We're either dead in our sin with Satan as our master or we're freed in Christ with God as our father and Jesus as our king. Jesus drops that big old truth bomb right here in the middle of this narrative, this situation of what's happening. See, we want flexibility when it comes to our spiritual condition. We fight to live in the gray. But the kingdom of God blows up our categories and creates this distinction. Either we're dead in our sin or we have life in Jesus. And it's Jesus who comes to free us from our bondage to sin and Satan, and it's Jesus who welcomes us into his kingdom. So we're going to unpack that this morning as we look at this text. So let's read our text today, Luke chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 14 all the way through to verse 28. You can read along if you'd like in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Now he, talking about Jesus, now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my home from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is God's word for us this morning. There are these three kind of truth statements that I want to pull out of this text or uh, truth nuggets. They're not 
explicitly stated in the text, but they become very clear as we read through this. And here they are. One, it's clear from this text that Satan's job, he works to oppress and enslave. That's what he does. I think that's, we'll find that clearly here in the text. Two, Jesus' purpose, that he sets free those who are in chains. That's why he is here. And I think we see that clearly in this text. And the third thing is, comes from the hard truth that Jesus says, that there is truth that divides and truth that unites. So let's look at these kind of three things that are happening that we're seeing in this text. First, the first one, that Satan works to oppress and enslave. In fact, these first two points, if you will, this morning, both find their genesis in one verse, verse 14. This short but simple truth opens here. Uh, There's a man who's being oppressed by an evil spirit or a demon that is causing him to be mute. That is, he is unable to speak. In Matthew's account of this interaction of Jesus, that this man is also referred to as being deaf, so he can't hear and he can't speak. So what we're told in this short little passage, or what was being explained to us, is that this demon had so oppressed this man that he was being assaulted physically and emotionally, and surely this affected him relationally, right? Can't hear, can't speak. He's just broken down, being crushed by evil demonic forces. And Luke simply tells us that Jesus was casting out this demon, and when the demon had left, the man was free. He spoke, and the people marveled. Now, we haven't been back in Luke very long here this spring, only a couple weeks, but this is not the first time that Jesus has gone head-to-head against some kind of demonic evil. In Luke chapter 4, and in Luke chapter 8, and in, in every place that Jesus interacts here, you get multiple reactions from people. And specifically, there's a group of people who watch this happen, and they are amazed. The person that they knew before, whether they were harming themselves, uh, or they were deaf or mute, or, or broken in some way that someone could look on and see, like, something's wrong here. When Jesus frees them, and their life is transformed, the people who are close to them say, this is amazing. Something has happened here because Jesus is displaying a unique power over darkness and evil. So even though it's only just part of verse 14, let's not overlook what we're learning about Satan here. Satan is creative in his hatred of humanity. He's creative in the ways he desires to harm all those who are made in the image of God. And just because we don't tend to see outward demonic manifestations like the one outlined here in Luke chapter 11, as often in our day and in our culture, that doesn't for a minute mean that Satan is not still actively scheming and working for our harm. J.C. Ryle uh, has a really great commentary. The Anglican uh, pastor and theologian has a great commentary on Luke's gospel. It's actually free online. I'll send you the link if you want it. He says this, Do we suppose, because bodily possession by Satan is not so glaringly manifest as it once was, that the great enemy is less active in doing mischief than he used to be? If we think so, then we have much to learn. Right? It's not as a scare tactic, but he's raising a little bit of a caution flag to go, there's an enemy whose mission is to steal and kill and destroy. Who, who hates God and hates God's people, who when he is lying, the scriptures say, he's speaking his native language. His native language is falsehood and lying. 
He hates not only God, he hates everyone who bears the image of God, because he does not. And all the more, he hates those who have been shown grace and mercy by God, who have been redeemed, who are being made into the likeness and image of Christ Jesus, because that is not offered to him in his rebellion, and because his death certificate is already signed by Jesus, he is fighting because his doom is sure. And so he hates God and he hates God's children. So we need to be careful to not discount the reality of an enemy who seeks your harm and my harm. In fact, J.C. Ryle argues, and I think it's a good argument, that the demon who made the man mute, that is, he was unable to speak, he was unable to use the tongue that God had fashioned in his mouth, J.C. Ryle surmises that perhaps that demon is actually still active today. And he kind of talks about it like this. What do we say about those who never speak of God, who never use the tongue that God gave them to give God praise, but only use it to curse God and to harm others? That maybe Satan has twisted the use of their tongue. Are they perhaps under the oppressive power of a mute devil who is keeping them from using what God has given them, right? See, the reminder here, right at the beginning of this text, is that Satan is at work in many ways to cause harm and destruction. And we'll come back to this a little bit as we work through this text. But we don't want to look uh, for demons around every corner. This is, again, not meant to scare you. We don't run scared from Satan. We don't run scared from his minions because Jesus comes with power to cast out our spiritual oppressors and free us from bondage. That's the other thing we learn in the first few words of verse 14. Jesus sets free those who are in chains. We see both of these things right away. In this instance, Luke says this, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute or had made the man mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. That's it. We learn both of these things from this first verse in 14. That Satan's at work to destroy and harm. And Jesus comes and says, I have none of that. And brings freedom. That all happens right, right here. There's no fancy ritual. There's no magic words or method. Every time we see Jesus intervene into the the brokenness that comes through sin and has affected all of creation in a situation like this, the demons have to be silent before him. They lash out, they wail, and he just basically tells them to be quiet. And he casts them out. His authority is so overwhelming. And in this case, the demon leaves the man and he is able to speak. He's immediately freed. Now, we, we will get into the reactions of those who were there, right? Some marveled, which we would hope would be the posture of our hearts. When we watch Jesus bring freedom, we go, wow. <laughs> there are some who are hostile and, and accuse him of being under the influence of the devil. We'll talk about them primarily today. And others continue, despite what they're seeing. They watch it happen in real time, and they're like, uh, Jesus, show us something else. We'll get into them next week a little bit. But before we get into those reactions, we need to be clear that Jesus is displaying why he has come. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he stands up in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth, opens the scroll of Isaiah, and reads what Heidi read earlier as our scripture reading for the day. From Isaiah, this is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then Luke tells us in Luke 4 that Jesus rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. And then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed on him. And then Jesus essentially leans forward in his chair and says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially saying, the promise of a Savior who would come to set free all those who are oppressed, you're looking at him. And then here in Luke 11, he is just carrying out, fleshing out the reality of that calling. He is literally setting people free from oppression and from prison and bondage. He was fulfilling his earthly ministry right here. Jesus has sought out those who are hurting and suffering and those who are enslaved to sin and Satan, and he comes to bring freedom. There's an acknowledgement that that evil has a stronghold on people, but that hold is broken decisively when the kingdom of God breaks through. Because it's not just a kingdom of words, but a kingdom of power. So let's not overlook that beautiful truth that Jesus comes to bring freedom. It is no small thing. And sometimes we relegate the gospel to something that Jesus did to save me from my sins. And we leave it over there, forgetting that the freedom that he brings to free us from sin and from Satan continues to work in us to make us into the image of Jesus and to make us more free. I have a pastor friend who says that he has the spiritual gift of remembering where he came from. Now, I don't think that's actually listed amongst the spiritual gifts. I mean, it could be there in the Greek somewhere, but I don't think so. But I get what he's saying. And when I heard him say that, I said, Lord, would you give me that gift to remember my chains and to remember that those chains are broken in Jesus, to not lose sight of either of those things, that I'm no longer in bondage to them. And then Jesus gives this illustration in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Jesus is helping turn their understanding. to The strong man in this passage, Jesus is talking about is Satan, the devil. He's armored up in his palace, guarding his goods. In this case, who is he guarding? He's guarding all those that he has taken, that he's master of. All those that he holds in bondage, he keeps them locked up like little trophies in his castle, guards them by his own strength. Verse 22, Jesus says, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he, the one who attacks, takes away the armor of the strong man who's guarding, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. He liberates his spoil. Jesus, the stronger one, attacks Satan's compound and overcomes him. And disarms him. I love that. Takes away the armor and the weapons in which Satan has trusted in. Now as an aside, I think Satan is creative, as I mentioned earlier, in his uh, choosing of how to destroy. But one of Satan's great weapons of war is accusation. In fact, one of the titles for Satan in the scriptures is the accuser of the brothers. He accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. That's kind of the picture. And so just to give you a picture of what that might look like, I'll give you an example from my life. Here's what the accusations of the enemy might sound like in the life of Jake. Satan, standing there, accusing me in front of God, might sound like this. Did you hear what came out of his mouth on Thursday afternoon when that person cut him off on 4th Street? Worse, did you hear 
and see what was going on in Jake's heart before a word ever left his lips? He deserves your judgment. Satan accuses and sometimes even tells the truth. Well, I'd argue it's a half-truth because I was there. I know what was brewing in my heart when that person cut me off going north here on 4th Street. It's a real story, by the way. (laughs) And he's right. What wickedness still remains is the old man dies so slowly. And yet, because in Christ Jesus, because Jesus has broken into Satan's palace and has stolen his armor and has freed his loot, if you will, me, us, from his grip, I can say Satan's accusation about the condition of my heart in that moment is accurate, but I don't stand condemned because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. I am welcomed to fall face down in repentance and confession, and I receive the forgiveness of God as I'm washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So I can stand and listen to the accusation and say, you're right, and I'm covered by the blood of Christ, and I'm no longer condemned. So one of Satan's favorite weapons is blunted or broken by Jesus. And the spoil of Satan, we who have been locked in bondage, we are taken from him and we are granted freedom. When Jesus frees us from Satan's grip, we are no longer trophies of oppression. We are no longer marked and numbered by that which oppressed us or broke us or what marks us as defective. Instead, we become trophies of God's grace. Look what God has done. Right? This is true freedom. Now, Jesus offers a caution too. Verse 24. He continues with this house illustration. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, essentially wanders around in the wilderness. That's how Jesus talks about it. When it can't find rest, it returns home and finds the house swept and put in order. Jesus is is talking about someone who's experienced at least some temporary relief from the chaos and the confusion of spiritual bondage. The demon in this case, who is not omnipresent, can't be everywhere, leaves. And in his absence, the person who was oppressed finds some temporary relief. And he or she is able to think clearly, to sweep the house, to to put things in order. Do you get the, the picture he's trying to paint there? But when the demon returns, although the house is put back in order, there's nobody guarding the door. It's still empty. And the demon not only just makes his way back in, but also goes and finds some friends. And they become permanent residents. Or essentially, the, the word that Jesus talks about there is he goes and brings seven other spirits and they enter and dwell there. That sense of dwelling is a sense of taking up residence. Squatters in a house to which they were never invited. So Jesus is giving a caution that it's not just about getting your house in order internally, but there's a spiritual victory. So the room is clean and reordered great, but it's not secure. See, you and I, the danger here, the caution here is that you and I can find relief from some of the things that weigh us down. You and I can develop better habits, and we probably should. You and I can practice self-discipline, and we probably should. You and I can grow our resolve, and we can say we probably should. But without someone else coming in to dwell in the house and make it secure, there is no stopping another invader. 
See, Jesus' caution is not to mistake outward improvement for inward transformation. J.C. Ryle again, brilliant, says it this way. To lay aside open sin is nothing unless grace reigns in our hearts. To cease to do evil is a small matter if we do not also learn to do good. The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced or else the leprosy may yet appear again in the walls. The outward life must not only be decorated with the formal trappings of religion, the power of vital religion must be experienced in the inward man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must not only be moralized, but spiritualized. We must not only be reformed, but born again. I'm sorry for the long quote. If you can't write it all down, I can email it to you. But he says it better than I would. He says it better than I would even try to paraphrase. That's why I just read the whole thing. See, Satan works to tear down and to bind. Jesus comes to set free. And full freedom for us is not just the casting out of the enemy from our lives, but also the giving us the filling of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within and takes up residence inside everyone whom Jesus makes free. This is the fulfillment of the promise that we read last week. Whether or not you saw it as a promise, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And all that Jesus is saying and doing is exposing those who are receptive to the gospel of the kingdom, and they recognize, I need that, and those who are opposed to it, which are the excuses and the questions and the accusations, which is the third and final truth that Jesus drops here, which is our third point this morning. Truth divides and truth unites. Now, some of those who are opposed to Jesus are saying to themselves, Jesus must be casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Maybe your translation says Beelzebub. It adds a B at the end. It kind of tells you here um, the prince of demons. Uh, it's likely a reference to another pagan god, uh, kind of the, the lord of the flies, not the book you read when you were in middle school, but a translation of the, the name, uh, Jewish, religious Jewish people would refer to this particular kind of demonic force or person or idea as the Lord of Dung, which is where you find flies, uh, kind of as a mocking term. Either way, it essentially boils down to they're accusing Jesus of, of casting out demonic forces by the power of Satan. Now, they're not saying this out loud, of course, because like, why would you do that? They're saying it amongst themselves. And I love that. It happens often. Verse 17, it says, and knowing their thoughts. I love that. Jesus is always catching people who like are mumbling under their breath. And he's like, hey guys, I know what you're thinking. And essentially, he lovingly and directly says, that's just a dumb argument. It's, it doesn't make any sense, guys. He uses a well-known kind of cultural truism. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. It's kind of a no-brainer kind of a statement, right? If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? No kingdom can fight itself and live, is what he's saying. That just doesn't make sense. So he couldn't do what he's doing, which he's, you know, oppressing people and spreading evil throughout the globe and defaming the name of God. He couldn't keep doing that as effectively, seemingly, as he's doing it if he was divided like you say he might be. 
if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, he even turns it back on them, then by whom are your sons doing the same thing? There were Jewish teachers and healers who also saw people delivered from bondage as they did their ministry in the name and power of Yahweh. So Jesus just essentially says, this is a bad argument. You should feel bad about your argument, guys. It's bad. But, he says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, if it's not as you think, it is actually by the hand of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's where Jesus draws this line in the sand. What he's telling them is, you don't really want me because you don't really want the kingdom. You're making up an excuse as to why I can't be doing this because in essence, you don't really want what God is up to. You're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting God and his kingdom, which is why he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this is where our cultural picture of Jesus gets a little more complicated because Jesus says something pretty hard here. This is one of the harder sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. See, some people are around Jesus because they're intrigued by what he's saying or what he's doing. They're curious. But many aren't willing to receive what he's telling them. Because he's telling them things like, you can't save yourself. You don't get to judge who is worthy and who is unworthy to receive God's grace. So the hard word that Jesus is dropping here is that there is no middle ground. And for some, this anchors them to the kingdom and Jesus really firmly. And for others, it draws a hard line that sees them on the other side. And we're going to deal with those who wanted to test Jesus and kept asking him for signs and proof next week. We'll deal with this, uh, this whole section all the way through 29 uh, through, well, kind of almost the end of the chapter is, is one long argument. We don't have time to do, deal with that today. I figured maybe uh, two sermons is better than one hour and a half long sermon. So we're going to deal with some of that next week into the next section, verses 29 and on. But it all hinge this week and next week, hinge on this hard truth. That when it comes to our spiritual condition, our spiritual citizenship, there is no middle ground. There's no third party. You're either in bondage to Satan and he's your master, or you've been freed by Jesus and he's your king. And Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And you hear that and you say, well, that's pretty black and white. That's a pretty strong, absolute statement there, Pastor Jake. And I'll say, with no sense of sarcasm at all, you're going to have to take it up with Jesus. He said it, not me. There is no middle ground. And this is, a hard, this is a hard word. Like I said at the beginning, we'd prefer nuance. We're more comfortable with options. I mean, we have to pick one right now. I mean, how about a top five kingdoms and we can just pick and choose the parts that fit us best? That would be easier. See, we're more comfortable with a process and a range but in this case, Jesus just kind of draws this line. And this line that he draws both unites and divides. It doesn't only divide. Now, clearly, there's a line that divides those who are subject to Jesus and those who are subject to Satan. Two camps. You're either dead or alive. The princess bride is wrong. There's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either dead or you're alive. Okay? You're either inside or outside. You live in bondage to Satan or you're free under Christ. There is truth that divides and this is 
one of them, that there are two kingdoms, that we belong to one or the other. One is the kingdom of God that is ruled by a king who is full of both grace and truth, who redeems wayward and traitorous people, which says far more about the grace of the king than it does about the traitors that he redeems. A king who makes sinners into saints, who frees us from our chains, who no longer condemns us because a king died in our place and rose again that we might share in his life. That's the kingdom of Jesus. The other kingdom is the kingdom of Satan. And no matter what he promises, self-realization and self-fulfillment, no matter the decoration on the walls of acceptance and happiness in life, he only offers bondage. And there, in his trophy room, he feeds on the souls of those under his control and deceives them into believing that he's being kind to them, all the while he's feeding them poison and offering them only death. There is no third kingdom, Jesus says. There's a division between the kingdoms, and that's a significant and necessary division. However, There is not division within the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said a kingdom that is divided within will crumble. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So there is a uniting, a unifying around our shared identity as sons and daughters of the Father. That we are a family of redeemed misfits. That we are loved and rescued by Jesus. We are invited to join him together on his mission to seek and save the lost. And I believe there's something for us to learn in this passage about needless division as well. I don't think it's the thrust of the passage, but I think we can't overlook it. There will be things about which we will disagree. Now some, as I pointed out above, are important. False teaching and false doctrine need to be opposed. It is a duty and not a sin to make sure we have clear lines on matters of Fundamental orthodoxy, that is, things that are essential to salvation and to uphold the core doctrines that are fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. There is no unity between light and darkness. What unity can there be without a unity of the Spirit, right? We wholeheartedly affirm that. And at the same time, we need to be willing to be humble, to not be divisive on matters of Secondary importance. Now that doesn't mean we'll always agree, but it does mean that we will not demean the kingdom of God by defaming the image of God in our fellow Christians on matters that are non-essential. We might even disagree on what's essential and non-essential, and we can talk about those things and lovingly fight a little. But, but hear me. Our doctrinal statement as a church is woven together with things we deem essential and other things that we deem important but not essential. And they shape our particular understanding, our particular application of God's word revealed to us in the scriptures and how we live together as a church. And as we say in our membership documents that we cheer on the big C church, meaning that churches that hold to the core standards of Orthodox Christian truth, that they are sisters and brothers. And though we might differ on some even significant and important secondary non-essential matters of doctrine, we will pray for their flourishing and we will join them and join Jesus on mission in our city so that we are together gathering with Jesus, verse 23, and not scattering the sheep needlessly. 
This is where truth unites us in the kingdom and in the household. It doesn't only divide. Now, after Jesus gives this hard teaching, a woman calls out from the crowd. Look at verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. The woman was blessing Jesus' mother because of her amazement at Jesus. This guy is something else. So God bless his mom. I love that. And Jesus responds, I don't think he's dismissing his mother in any way. I think he's just helping reframe significance and priority. More a matter of priority, more a matter of importance, of greater blessing than the, than the woman who bore me. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now this text is a hinge for us as we look at both this text and next week. That maybe we can meditate on verses uh, 27 and 28 a bit as we prepare for next Sunday as well. See, Jesus is saying some hard things here. And they're hard in the context. And sometimes I think they're even especially hard for us in a post-enlightenment Western American culture that is defined by relativism and individualism. It's particularly hard for us to process through things that seem so absolute. But I think what Jesus is saying to us here is that there's blessing to be found when we can humble ourselves and come under this absolute reality that there are two kingdoms. We want flexibility when it comes to our spiritual condition as if there's blessing and good for us if we can live in the gray. But Jesus is saying that, no, no, there are two kingdoms. Either we're dead in our sin or we have life in Jesus. And wrapped up in that is a promise for us that we can actually have true and full and lasting freedom and life in this life and the next and hope and joy and peace. All of that can be ours when Jesus frees us from our bondage to sin and Satan and welcomes us into his kingdom. So let us be those who can hear and receive this word from Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we Father, we struggle when we consider our own shortcomings, when we consider our own condition and our own situation. We struggle to find ourselves in a passage like this. Sometimes we feel like the man who's just been beaten down and oppressed by our enemy. And sometimes we find ourselves on the outside looking in, listening to that, wondering, can you really free someone? Can, Can you really do that? Are you who you say you are? Wherever we find ourselves, I pray we would hear the words of Jesus here, welcoming us to come near, welcoming us into His close proximity, into the kingdom. That in Him we might find our freedom. That in Him our cynicism and our, and our self-reliance, we might put those things down. 
and be willing to come under Jesus as our King. That we might be willing to humble ourselves in places where our secondary matters have become primary matters that we might be able to to put away or set aside for a moment that sword so that we might find where we are together in the kingdom. That we might receive this hard but necessary word from Jesus. You're calling us into your kingdom, away from death and into life. Holy Spirit of God, would you make us those by your grace who can hear the word of God and keep it. We confess this is a work you must do in us. So as we come to the table for communion, would you encourage your church as we look upon Jesus afresh and all that he did to purchase for us freedom and life, that we might confess our sins knowing you are faithful and just to forgive and that we might walk in this newness of life given to us as citizens of your kingdom, as beloved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.